So I want you to think back to maybe a big trip or vacation or adventure that you've had at some point in your life. Maybe going to an unknown land, not knowing quite what to expect when you got there. If you're anything like me, when you get ready for a big adventure, you probably put together some sort of packing list, these essential things that you know you're going to need for this upcoming big adventure of yours. And when I think back on my life, on some of the big adventures that God took me on, probably one of the biggest ones was when God called me and my family to Wyoming uh, when I first became a senior pastor. And uh, as We realized God had called us to the state of Wyoming. I'd never been to Wyoming. I kind of knew where it was on a U.S. map. I knew the general region. That was about my knowledge and extent of my knowledge of Wyoming. I knew it was colder than Oklahoma and Texas, right? I I grew up in Oklahoma. I went to school here in in Dallas at Dallas Seminary. I knew that the Wyoming winters were going to be worse than what I encountered here. I mean, here when it snows in the winter, we just shut everything down, right? Like we don't do anything for that day and then we move on. Uh, But Wyoming is like nine months of winter. So I knew that this was going to be a lot more difficult than winters in Oklahoma and Texas. And so as I prepared for this big adventure God was taking my family on to move to Wyoming, I put together the list of all the things that I thought I needed, all the essential required things that I knew I would need to survive these long Wyoming winters. And so we got all the obvious things. We got, you know, winter clothes. We got nice big winter uh, coats. We got skis. We got snowshoes. We got all the stuff, right? We were equipped and ready for these Wyoming winters. But the one thing that I wanted more than anything else, the one thing I knew that I would need more than anything else to survive these long, harsh Wyoming winters is I knew I needed a Jeep Wrangler, (laughs) I knew I needed a Jeep Wrangler. I mean, you got, you know, snow and all this stuff, and I had all these visions of driving around in a Jeep Wrangler and just these big tires and slinging mud and snow everywhere. And so I just knew in my mind, I really needed a Jeep Wrangler. And so as we uh, moved from Oklahoma to Wyoming, on our way there, on our drive there, no joke, I made a pit stop in Oklahoma City and I bought a 2008 Jeep Wrangler. It was a hard top, white, it has a two-door, it was the iconic Jeep Wrangler, and I left Oklahoma equipped with everything I needed to survive this new adventure in Wyoming. I was prepared for all that was ahead. And as we continue our study here in the Upper Room Discourse, we're reaching a point now in John chapter 14 where Jesus, he's been telling his disciples over and over again that he's about to leave. And now in the second half of John chapter 14, Jesus is going to give his disciples the list of the things they need, the absolute must-haves, if they're going to follow him in a fallen world. Jesus gives them the list of the absolute things they will need to survive following Jesus in a fallen world once he leaves them. I want you to open your Bible up to John chapter 14 as we take a look together this morning at John 14 verses 15 through 31. And Jesus is going to give 
the to-do list, the packing list of things these disciples need if they're going to follow him in a fallen world. The first thing we're going to see here in John 14 is Jesus is going to say, you need the paraclete. You need another helper. I'm leaving, so I'm sending to you another helper who's going to be with you. The second thing the disciples are going to need if they're going to follow Jesus in a fallen world is this big word, number two on your outline, perichoresis. It's the divine presence in them and among them. And the third thing the disciples are going to need if they're going to follow Jesus in a fallen world once he leaves is they're going to need his peace, his peace. So follow along with me there on your outline, uh, starting with John chapter 14. We're going to look at verse 15 first. This is number one on your outline. Jesus is going to tell his disciples, you need, if you're going to survive in this fallen world, if you're going to follow me in this fallen world, you're going to need the paraclete. You're going to need another helper. Let's look first at John chapter 14, verse 15. Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Let's pause right here. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, something I want you to do as we go through John 14, verse 15 through verse 31. Multiple times in this section, Jesus is gonna talk over and over again about two concepts, love and obedience. And so every time when we work through these verses. Every time you see something that relates to either love or obedience, I want you to take a written note or at least a mental note about what Jesus is saying, and then we'll come back to it at the end, okay? But here, Jesus lays out, if you love me, you will keep or obey my commandments. Remember this, we'll come back to it. But then in verse 16, Jesus says this. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. So once again, to remind you of what we've seen thus far in the upper room discourse, Jesus has been preparing his disciples for his departure. He's been telling them over and over again that he's about to leave. We saw last week at the beginning of chapter 14, Jesus says, I'm leaving. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure, and now he's giving them the list of the things they need, and he will provide when he leaves. The first thing on that list that Jesus says, you need and I will provide is another helper. The Greek word is paraclete, and it is translated a number of ways. If you have different Bible translations, some put it, you will need another helper or another comforter or another advocate. Some translate it very literally, this word paraclete, meaning one who comes alongside. And again, think of it, for three years now, Jesus has been alongside these disciples. He's been walking among them, he's been with them, he's been teaching them, and now Jesus says, listen guys, I'm leaving, but the good news is, I'm sending you another advocate. I'm sending you the paraclete, another one who's gonna come alongside you in this journey of following Jesus in a fallen world. Now, 
As we'll see here in a little bit, Jesus, when he mentions this paraclete, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And as the Gospels continue, as the book of Acts continues, as we see Paul develop in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit comes alongside of us, comforts us, strengthens us, teaches us, just like Jesus did the disciples for these three years. A couple things I want you to notice here in these verses. Notice Jesus says about this other helper, the paraclete, he will be with you forever. Jesus was with his disciples again for about three years, but now Jesus says this other helper, he's going to be with you forever. And notice he's the spirit of truth. He's the spirit of truth. Here in a few verses, we'll see one of the things the Holy Spirit does in his ministry is he reminds his disciples, the disciples of all the things Jesus has said. He's the spirit of truth. He's the communicator of truth. And whereas Jesus walked alongside physically his disciples, Jesus here says that the Holy Spirit is invisible and will be in you. Notice again, he says, the world does not see him or know him, but you will know him because he abides with you and will be in you. So the first thing Jesus says here to his disciples, the the thing they will need if they're to follow Jesus in a fallen world, number one on that list is another helper, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. He will be their lifeline to survive the turbulence of living in a fallen world. They need him because Jesus is going away. The good news is Jesus is, is going to provide exactly what they need. Jesus then says in verses 18 through 20, he says to his disciples, in that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. And he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my Father. I will love him and disclose myself uh, to him. Uh, Actually, I'm sorry, back up. Let me... Excuse me, back up, verse 18. He says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. And in that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Um, A big question here, by the way, just kind of Bible study methods is, is what is Jesus talking about? There in verse 18, he makes this incredible promise to his disciples, again, preparing them for his departure. He says, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. He says, I will come to you. And if you were to open up a number of commentaries on the Gospel of John, different commentators offer different possibilities for what Jesus means by this promise, I will come to you. The first option, by the way, all of them theologically are true, but the first option when Jesus says, I will come to you, is similar to the promise he said last week at the beginning of chapter 14 in reference to the rapture. This idea that one day Jesus will return physically for his church and he will be with them then. So that's kind of the first interpretive option. The second interpretive option is many commentators say, no, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about his presence among his disciples when he sends the Holy Spirit. 
because that's what Jesus is talking about here is the Holy Spirit. The third interpretive option of what Jesus means by this promise of I will come again to you, I don't leave you as orphans, is he's referring to his post-resurrection appearances. Meaning, listen, there's gonna be this really short temporary separation, but I will come to you. You will see me again in these post-resurrection appearances. Uh, Real quick, I want you to flip over to John chapter 20 for just a second. I kind of wrestled through that this week of, of really what is Jesus talking about here because all three options theologically are accurate. Um, but then I decided to flip ahead in the story and read the first encounter that the disciples of Jesus have with him after his resurrection. Notice John chapter 20 verse 19 says, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side and the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And so Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And so flip back to John chapter 14. I think What Jesus is referencing here when he says, I don't leave you as orphans, I will come to you. I think most specifically, most immediately, what he does have in mind is those post-resurrection appearances when he says, my peace I leave with you and receive the Holy Spirit. Um, Now again, that's a big interpretive issue, but I think the major thing is Jesus is comforting his disciples with this promise. He is leaving them. He's been preparing them for this day over and over and over again. He's leaving them, but he's not leaving them as orphans. He's got a plan for them. And then finally, look at verse 21. Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. This is now the second time in these verses that Jesus is throwing out these concepts of love and obedience. So I want you to, again, just take a written note or at least take a mental note of what Jesus is saying here. Throughout this section, he's weaving in these ideas of love and obedience. We'll come back to that at the end. But the big thing in these verses that I want you to see, verses 15 through 21, is Jesus is laying out his promise to provide the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, that these disciples will need if they were to follow Jesus in a fallen world. If they're going to follow Jesus in a fallen world, the first essential thing that they need, and he will provide, is the other helper, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. In their upcoming adventure, Jesus will give them the paraclete. But the disciples, as we'll see here, are still confused. They're not quite sure exactly what it is that Jesus is saying. And so let's take a look at that confusion as we look at number two on your outline. The second thing Jesus says they need and he will provide. And it's this big word, perichoresis. Perichoresis. Now, Perichoresis, before we jump into the text, this is one of those big fancy words they teach you in seminary so you get to sound really smart when you talk about it, right? Um, 
It's a really important word though, and it's a word that theologians use to describe the mutual indwelling of each member, each person of the Trinity with the other. That the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are so together that this fancy word perichoresis is the only word that can really describe it. It's this mutual indwelling of each member of the Godhead in the other without confusing them, but creating this incredible unity among them. And Jesus here in these verses began introducing this idea of perichoresis or the mutual indwelling to the disciples. Later in chapter 17, he's going to develop it a little bit more. And the amazing thing we see here and we're going to see in chapter 17 is that Jesus is going to tell his disciples is that each and every one of us is invited ourselves to join in that perichoretic relationship among the Trinity. We're invited to participate in this unique relationship among the members of the Godhead with one another. This is an incredible thing. And to introduce this idea, let's take a look at verse 22. John says there in verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, to Jesus, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us, but not to the world? So throughout chapter 14, we've seen Jesus teaching his disciples, and every now and then, one of the disciples interrupts Jesus with a question. And now we're introduced to another disciple, a man named Judas, not Iscariot. (laughs) Uh, Judas Iscariot, remember, he's the one who's betraying Jesus. He's already left the room. So here's another disciple named Judas. Many scholars say this is the man we now know as Thaddeus, perhaps He changed his name to Thaddeus for obvious reasons. Um, So perhaps Thaddeus or Judas, not Iscariot, he interrupts Jesus once again. and He says, Jesus, I got a question. Okay, you just told me that you're leaving and that the world is no longer going to see you, but we will see you. Jesus, I don't understand. What in the world are you talking about? Judas, not Iscariot, says, Lord, what has happened that you're going to disclose yourself or show yourself, reveal yourself to us, but not to the world? How are you going to show yourself and yet not be visible to the world? I don't get it. And to answer his disciples' confusion, Jesus answers back in verses 23 and 24. He answers and said to him, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. And my father will love him and we will come to him and notice this, we will make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words and the word which you hear is not mine but the father's who sent me. A couple big things I want you to see here in these verses. Notice for the third time now, Jesus weaves in this idea of love and obedience Throughout this entire section of talking about the Holy Spirit and the perichoresis and the peace we'll talk about here in a little bit, Jesus has been weaving in this idea of love and obedience. Take note of it. We'll come back to it here in a bit. But the big thing I want you to notice right now about what Jesus says here 
is there at the end of verse 23, he makes this incredible promise. He says, we, the Father and the Son, will come and make our abode with him or in him. Think about this for a second. At the beginning of chapter 14 last week, we saw this remarkable promise that Jesus makes that he is leaving. He's leaving to go prepare a place for his disciples. He's going to prepare a home in heaven for his disciples. Here, Jesus makes this incredible promise that he's going to make a home for the Godhead in the disciples. You ever think about this? Again, this is real theological, this is real heady, I know, but, but uh, you were designed to be indwelled by Father, Son, and Spirit. That Jesus here is making this incredible promise that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit indwell you as a Christian. That he makes his abode inside of you. That you are invited to enter into this perichoretic, this divine presence is in you. Listen, I'll be honest with you. I don't really know exactly what that means. (laughs) I don't really know exactly what that means. But Jesus makes this incredible promise. He says to his disciples, listen, if you're going to follow me in a fallen world, you get to participate in this divine presence that's going to be inside of you. That each member of the Godhead, as they mutually indwell one another, are also going to indwell you. And then notice what he says in verses 25 and 26. He says, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. He will abide in you. Now he's abiding with you. And then 26 says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. I love what Jesus does here. Um, I think he realizes that the disciples are thoroughly confused as you are probably thoroughly confused and I am thoroughly confused. And so Jesus throws out there in verse 26, this great promise. He says, listen, when the Holy Spirit comes, he's gonna help you remember everything I've said. Like it may not make sense to you now, but it'll make sense to you later. And the Holy Spirit is gonna help you remember all of these promises that I'm making. And what's amazing is as you read through the Gospels, as you read into the book of Acts, you see over and over again these little lines where it says, and the disciples remembered, or their eyes were opened. They looked back on what Jesus has promised, and now with the Holy Spirit inside of them, it clicks and it makes sense. And they begin to realize that these promises Jesus has made really did come true. It's an incredible thing. But the thing I want you to see here, and again, there's, there's so much here. Jesus will unpack it a little bit more in chapter 17. But Jesus is saying to his disciples, listen, if you're going to follow me in a fallen world, one of the things you need is my presence in your life. I'm really not leaving you as orphans. But I'm going to come and I'm going to make my abode in you. Me, Father, and the Spirit, we're all going to come and make our home with you. You're going to have the divine presence in your life. If you're going to follow Jesus in a fallen world, then you need me in you. So Jesus is promising to equip them 
with the paraclete. He's promising to equip them with this perichoresis, his presence in their life. And the third thing we see as we take a look at number three on your outline is Jesus is promising to provide the peace that they will need as they follow Jesus in a fallen world. Take a look at verse 27. Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled nor let it be fearful. A couple things I want you to notice here in verse 27. First of all, look at the end. Jesus says to his disciples yet again, do not let your heart be troubled nor let it be fearful. He said almost the exact same thing to them in chapter 14, verse one, which we saw last week. Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled because the reality is their hearts are troubled. Jesus has been telling them he's leaving, but Jesus' words here are meant to ease that troubling of their hearts. Jesus' comforting words here are meant to take away the fear that they're facing as they think about living in this world without his physical presence by their side. So Jesus reminds them once again, don't let your hearts be troubled. In the place of trouble, Jesus offers peace. I want you to notice there in verse 27 that twice Jesus uses that word peace. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. If these disciples are going to follow Jesus in a fallen world, one of the things that they're going to need and he promises here to provide is peace. As they try to navigate through the chaos and the difficulty of following Jesus in a fallen world, instead of being filled with trouble and fear, Jesus says, I'm offering to you my peace. I love what Dr. Pentecost says here. He says, this peace that Jesus is offering was the quietness that would come to their hearts from trusting God and knowing that he was in control of all the events that touched their lives. Therefore, as they went into the world to discharge the ministry he had entrusted to them, they did not need to have hearts that were troubled or afraid. And listen, the same is true for you and for me. As we think about the reality of trying to follow Jesus in a fallen world, we should be comforted by the fact that Jesus offers to us his peace. His peace that surpasses all understanding. Jesus offers to us his peace. And then notice verses 28 and 29. Jesus says, you have heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. Again, he's been saying this over and over and over again. I'm gonna leave, but I'll come to you. And then he says, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it does happen, you may believe. Jesus reminds his disciples once again what's about to happen. He reminds them once again of all that he's been saying over and over again. And then he lays out there at the middle of verse 28, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. This kind of connects back to what he just said. Don't let your heart be fearful. Don't be troubled. Instead, if you, if you really understand what's about to take place, if you can see through the darkness to the resurrection, then you would rejoice about what's about to take place. 
See, the disciples are short-sighted and they're focused only on the fact that Jesus is leaving them. They're not looking at the promise that lies on the other end. They don't realize that it's only through this separation, it's only through the betrayal, the arrest, the unjust trial, the crucifixion, the death of Jesus that we ultimately come to the resurrection. And Jesus says, if you really saw what I see, then you would rejoice. And I've told you all of this, verse 29, so that when it happens, you'll believe. And then I want you to notice verses 30 and 31 that round out the chapter. Jesus says, I will not speak much more with you. I will not speak much more with you. This is now just moments. This is mere hours away from Jesus' arrest where who will be led away. He knows that his time is short. It's coming to an end. So he says, I will not speak much more with you. And then verse 30, the ruler of the world is coming. And notice this, he has nothing in me. The ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. First of all, Jesus says the ruler of this world is coming and obviously he's referring to Satan. I think he's specifically referring to the fact that Judas, Judas's plan to betray Jesus and hand him over, this is now underway. But the second thing I want you to notice in this verse that I love Jesus says, he says, he, the ruler of this world, Satan, has nothing in me. A couple commentators say you should translate this as he has nothing on me. It's like Jesus is looking at what's about to take place, but he's not scared at all. He's like, Satan has nothing on me. He thinks that what's about to take place is going to be for his victory, but even Satan doesn't understand. Satan doesn't see the light at the end of the tunnel that Jesus knows, that Jesus knows it's only through this darkness that ultimately his victory will ultimately be won. And listen, as we think about this, this phrase, Jesus says here, he, this, the ruler of this world, has nothing in me. Um, I do want to remind you that the sad reality into which you and I are all born, and the reality is we are born enslaved to sin. We are born under the power of Satan and the fallenness of this broken world. And there is absolutely nothing we can do to escape it. But what Jesus sees, and the reason he's looking at this without any fear but with confidence, is because he knows that on the other side of the cross is the victory. That on the other side of the cross those of us, all of us, who are born enslaved to sin are set free. That all of us who are born enslaved to Satan and to a fallen world are redeemed. And so for that reason, Jesus says, he, the ruler of this world, has nothing in me. He's got nothing on me. And listen, if this is news to you, if you don't know the redemption that Jesus is describing here, then I would encourage you, invite you right where you are here in this room or watching online to put your faith in him. Uh, that he has and he will set you free from sin and death. He will one day come to rescue you from this fallen world. And that's what the Bible means when it talks about this idea of redemption. And if you've not trusted in him, if you don't have a relationship with him, I'd encourage you uh, to put your faith in him.
The last thing I want you to see is here in verse 31. Jesus says, so that the world may know that I love the Father. I do or obey exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. Once again, we see Jesus tying into this conversation, this idea of obedience and love, love and obedience. And here he says that he's living it out, that he is obeying what the Father has commanded him, that Jesus is the model of this love and obedience dynamic that I'll talk about here in just a few minutes. This love and obedience he's called his disciples to follow, he's doing to perfection. The final thing there in verse 31, Jesus says to his disciples, come, let us go from here, let us leave from here. Um, uh, Dr. Pentecost is the one who taught me the upper room discourse, and I think he's right in, in this moment is when the disciples leave the upper room. This entire time they've been in this upper room in a house, and now they begin their journey ultimately to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus will be betrayed, arrested, and led away to trial and crucifixion. They won't get there until chapter 18, uh, but starting next week in chapter 15 all the way through 17 is kind of the journey along the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, but they're leaving the upper room at this point. Okay, there's a ton in this passage. Um, there is a lot going on here in the second half, half of John chapter 14. The main thing I want you to see is Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure. He's telling them now the things they're going to need and he will provide once he's gone. They're going to need and he will provide the paraclete, the other helper. They're going to need and he will provide this divine presence, this perichoresis in their life. They will need and he will provide the peace that only he can bring as they try to follow Jesus in a fallen world. They need it. He will provide it. But the big question is, are they going to know what to do with it? They need the Holy Spirit. They need the divine presence and peace in their life. He will provide it, but the question is, are these guys going to know what to do with what God has provided? Let me tell you another story about this Jeep Wrangler that I bought on my way to Wyoming. There's a really important detail of the story that I left out. When I went and bought this Jeep Wrangler, it was the exact Jeep Wrangler that I wanted. It was white, two-door, hard top, um, and of course it was a stick shift. I wanted a stick shift Jeep Wrangler, manual transmission. But the problem was I didn't know how to drive a stick shift. <laughs> and and that, was a, that became a problem. Um, and so I made this pit stop at this used car dealership in Oklahoma City, and I went in and I test drove the car because um, I, I actually, I did a little research ahead of time. I watched a lot of YouTube videos about how to drive a stick shift. And so I walked into the dealership. I knew how to drive a stick shift. I knew intellectually how to drive a stick shift. And somehow, by the grace of God, I got through the test driving process. And I went in and I purchased this Jeep Wrangler. It was now mine. I owned it. And I got in, I pulled out of the used car dealership, and I came to the first red light. 
And this was not just any regular red light. This was a red light that was right before the on-ramp to the interstate. And so I'm stopped at the red light. I'm in my Jeep Wrangler. It's everything I want, everything I need to be prepared for this new adventure in Wyoming. And the red light turns green, and I stall it out. And so I start it back, and I stall it out again, and I start it again, and I stall it out again. And by this time, Han and the kids are in a car behind me, and they're praying. They realize what's going on. They're praying. There are other cars behind us, and they're not praying. They're honking, right? <laughs> and I'm not exaggerating. Hannah will confirm this. I stall out through three cycles of red and green lights, <laughs> Three full cycles of red and green lights. And at some point, all of these people behind me, they're getting frustrated. A few of them are smart and they pull around me. They give me the one finger wave as they move on to the interstate. And this was one of the most humiliating moments of my life. And I remember sitting there thinking like, oh my goodness, what have I done? I've purchased this car. It is now mine, but I don't know what to do with it. I really don't know how to operate this thing that I now possess. And it was a horrible moment when I realized there is a massive difference between intellectual knowledge and experiential knowledge, right? You can know something intellectually, but it doesn't necessarily connect with your experience. And what I realized is both intellectual knowledge and experiential knowledge are very important, right? Because knowledge without experience, knowledge without experience just stalls you out. But experience with no knowledge is just foolishness. I mean, you're just kind of moving the stick around, right? But you don't really know what you're doing. And the same is true in the Christian life. The same is true with what we see Jesus has provided for us, his disciples, if we're to follow him in the fallen world. Jesus has provided all that we need. He's provided his spirit. He's provided his presence. He's provided his peace. But the question is, do we know what to do with what God has given us? And so the big question is, how do those worlds connect between our intellect and our experience? And I think the answer is what, in what Jesus has repeated throughout this entire section, love and obedience. Love and obedience. If we're going to connect between what we know to be true and our experience of it, then we're called to lovingly obey the commands of our Savior. Look again, just a couple of verses here that Jesus talks about. Verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And finally, again, verse 31, Jesus himself says, but so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do as he commanded me. What's fascinating to me in this particular section of chapter 14 is throughout Jesus' conversation of these things that he's going to provide for his disciples, he reminds them of the importance of lovingly obeying all that he has said. One scholar says, for John, love is embodied in action. 
Love is embodied in action. Grant Osborne, another commentator, says this, love and obedience become the necessary qualification for experiencing the Spirit. Love and obedience become the necessary qualification for experiencing the Spirit. Not receiving the Spirit. Jesus gives his disciples the Spirit. He gives them his presence. He gives them his peace. But their experience of it is connected only as they lovingly obey him in all that he has said. Love and obedience are kind of that connection point. They're that clutch that comes together between our knowledge of God and our experience of God. So there at the top of your outline on the backside, I've given you some application questions, but your one thing for this week is this. I really want you to take some time to contemplate all that Jesus is saying here of his promise, of his presence with you, his peace that he offers to you, and pray to grow in your trust, in your love, and in your obedience of his presence and peace in your life. Just to, by the way, to salvage uh, any respect that you may have lost for me this morning. Um, I did, in fact, learn how to drive that stick shift. It it took some time. um, But by the time I made the thousand-mile journey from Oklahoma to Wyoming, I pretty much had it. I even got through Denver rush hour traffic. I didn't stall it out a single time. I was really impressed with myself. But I learned to drive that stick shift and it got me through six long winters. It got me through this incredible adventure that God took our family on as I learned how to be a senior pastor there in Wyoming. And I had a ton of fun in that Jeep. I put it to its test, tested its limits. It was amazing. Um, But it's similar to the incredible adventure that God is putting you and I all on as following Jesus in a fallen world. What we see here in John 14 is Jesus has provided us with all that we need. All that we need to survive following him in this fallen world. He's promised to give us his paraclete, the Holy Spirit. He's promised to give us this divine presence in our life. He's promised to give us his peace. Jesus knowing what lies before him, knowing that all, that all, what all his disciples are going to have to go through, He promises to provide all they'll need to follow him in a fallen world. He promises his divine presence and peace. Will you pray with me? Uh, Father, uh, there truly is so much here. There's so much here uh, that we don't fully understand. Uh, We don't understand, Father, just how it is that you, Father, Son, and Spirit, you come and make your home in us. That you've made your abode inside of us. Uh, Father, we're, we're so grateful that as we really think through what it is to follow Jesus in a fallen world, I can so relate to the fear, the trepidation, uh, the troubled spirit there in the heart of the disciples. And yet I'm comforted by the words of Jesus that Jesus has given us all that we need. Uh, thank you, Jesus, that you have promised to give us your spirit who indwells us, that you've promised to give us the divine presence where Father, Son, and Spirit come and are with us. And thank you that you've promised to give us your peace where we can navigate through this broken, fallen world. And uh, by the power of your spirit, 
God, I pray that you would help us to tap into what you have provided for us as we lovingly obey you, as we seek to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, as we seek to obey the very words of Jesus. Uh, Thank you that you've given us all that we need. Help us to be the people you created us to be. Help us to be the salt and light in this fallen world in which we live. I ask this for myself and for each one here, and I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.